Hello everyone, it's August 10th, 2021. It's a big show this week. Astro's getting ready for a launch, Starship is stacked, and Perseverance is having some soil collection issues, and we have Danny Gleason of Real Trust Space on the show as well. It barely fits into my 14.9 second intro, and liftoff. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 320 of the Open Up Connects podcast. I'm David. And I'm Dennis. Ben will be here later. <laughs> so this is his second week of yeah. home renovation, staycation, whatever he calls it. Mm. But he'll be here for the interview coming up later, uh, as well as some other stuff. So he's taking a partial week off, I guess. It's an in-orbit rendezvous. Uh, later yeah, on there the you show. go. He's, he's launching. I like a, that. <laughs> he's launching in a bit. <laughs> yeah, I like that. Why didn't I think of that? That's perfect. <laughs> and in orbit rendezvous. But it, just like the further we can, you know, stretch this out, this whole, you know, <laughs> just go with it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So we have that in orbit rendezvous coming up a little bit later. But for now, yeah. So it's uh we're just launching. Uh, it's a two-person crew, sort of mm. like a Soyuz, and then we'll rendezvous with Ben. He's in a, uh, I don't know, something else cool. <laughs> So first up, uh, we have some more news on Astra. They are getting ready for their next orbital launch. So they've been uh, they've, they've they've had some issues, um, one problem after another. But it looks like they're you know getting there. So uh, what is going on with Astra lately? Yeah, right. They've got their kind of recipe for success now. Because um, to kind of give like like the, their their history, you can sum it up pretty much in I guess three phases so far. You had three years or so ago, you had them doing those initial launches that were suborbital, that they were like launching into like clouds and like they were, the, the, the rockets were failing, but it was like mysterious exactly what was happening. And one of them, I think the second one had that, uh, uh, basically damaged a lot of the site too, a lot of debris, uh, from the, uh, uh, the explosion, the, the rocket exploded apparently and, uh, rained, uh, debris all over the site. And so that took a bit of time to decant, uh, you know, decontaminate it and all that jazz and so that's kind of like phase one i guess and then phase two was the darpa launch challenge which um they were you know they outpaced uh virgin orbit and uh vector uh and it was just them and the challenge and they missed the deadline but they're like all right we're still gonna do it anyway yeah and then a pad fire destroyed that rocket and like you said they had a little tough problems there um and so that's the first two phases and then i guess phase three is they've got their you know rocket three uh, which is, you know, they, they iteratively, you know, keep improving and building their rockets, uh, bigger and better and stronger. And so these are orbital ones. Um, I mean, the DARPA one was going to be orbital too, but, uh, this, uh, rocket 3.1 was the one that if you remember, there was like some good cell phone footage of it. Basically it had guidance problems, uh, during ascent and there's cell phone footage of it basically, you know, falling out of the sky and big boom when it hits the ground. But they are set up for success because Rocket 3.2, their most recent one, was one that just was shy of actually getting orbital, and it was only due to their fuel mixture being mm -hmm. a little bit off, and they ran out of fuel before they could quite get there. I mean, they were like they were very close, <laughs> very, very close to reaching full orbit. And so that's why this one, you know, barring the kind of issues that could happen during any flight, this I think is going to be, you know, fingers crossed, is going to be their first fully nominal, total, you know, uh, flawless success for uh 
for their orbital rocket. And so this is 3.3, you know, they're, they're continuing that kind of yeah. naming scheme. And so, yeah. I don't remember. So what is the fuel? I'm assuming that the fuel of this rocket, you know, that it's fueled by RP-1 uh, in LOX. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember when this happened, I was really surprised that, uh, you know, that they had this fuel mixture problem because I don't think it was an accident. I mean, I think that they had the fuel mixture that they wanted. It's just that it wasn't the right one. So, so they had to kind of, you know, like go back and look at it. But I would have thought that, you know, the chemistry of, you know, the most efficient thrust and all that, like I thought that that was kind of well worked out. Um, but maybe I was wrong. Yeah. I was under the, um, I was under the same impression as you. And I'm guessing that maybe that's just, you know, if, if you look in a textbook, you know, and like what kind of mm-hmm. uh, uh, ratio you'd want them to actually be, you know, that uh, I can imagine maybe when you're actually designing it in, in the real world and you're accounting for all the other intricacies of the launch vehicle that, it, you know, you, you actually could be off by a little bit. I guess it was kind of what they had done. This gets into their ascent profile, but it might just be, you know, they needed more thrust and less specific impulse or something like that, you know? Mm. Like, yeah. So let's hope that this time, you know, they, they actually have the right fuel mixture mm-hmm. and uh, yeah, good luck to them. Yeah. So they've done a, a recent hot fire launch. And so we got a nice little video of that. Uh, the, the, you know, Astra had tweeted it out. And so you can go follow them on Twitter if you haven't. Uh, and um you know, this is their sixth vehicle overall, if you, if you, if you paid attention to the math when I was giving that brief little history there. <laughs> and so specifically, this is a, uh, uh, this mission, uh, that's coming up is going to launch uh, at the uh, end of this month, uh, or maybe early September. And so it's August 27th to September 11th. And, uh, you know, flying out of their, you know, their site up in Kodiak, we had a nice interview, um, with, uh, you know, uh, about the range, uh, uh, I don't know, a few months ago or so. I can't remember exactly when that was, but it was. I thought it was a very interesting one because you know it was a small commercial spaceport and just yeah, uh, one at a very, very you know, very high latitude. <laughs> and so yeah, and um, it's 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 a contract uh, with the Defense Innovation Unit of the Space Force, and so all they're really saying is calling it a test payload, right? No more details you can imagine. You know, it's, you know, something, you know, confidential, something secure. And, uh, the, but it ha- does have an, a uh, designation where we're being given, which is STP-27 AD1. And so, uh, what's, uh, pretty neat about this though, cause I love watching Astro launches. And again, I'm, you know, I think they're poised for success for this one is that, uh, this contract includes two payloads. And so there's going to be a second launch, uh, later this year, um, also for, uh, the, uh, DIU. And so, uh, yeah, I mean, they've got a lot of contracts under their belt, uh, in an interview with Space News, uh, Chris Kemp, the CEO, uh, uh, basically says that, you know, they've got, uh, 50, uh, or more uh, launches under contract already. And so now it's just a matter of them, you know, uh, getting orbital and, you know, uh, they, uh, one, uh, in, in what, like four years or so, they want to be launching every day. And of course, that's aspirational, right? You know, but they can still definitely, uh, at least they have a lot of, uh, a lot of, uh, launches in their docket. And so that's a good yeah. place to be, uh, for your company. <laughs> yeah. That, that's very impressive considering, you know, that, mm. that they're just getting started here, that they have such, a huge launch manifest already. Um, that's kind of, that's, I mean, like, that's almost unheard of, really, to be honest. Like, you know, 50, I don't think just so early on. Right. Um, well, then again, you know, they've been working at this for a year, so maybe it's not that early. It's not, you know, that out of the blue, but, um, you know, a lot of people have a lot of confidence, um, right. in Astra. So I think it's the key thing. Yeah, exactly. Cause I guess, yeah, they haven't reached orbit yet. I mean, they came yeah. very close. I think that demonstrated that they, they can and they will reach orbit, but like, yeah, this is, mm-hmm. Definitely a company that, um, even before, you know, uh, their rocket 3.2, you know, 
was just shy of getting orbital, they still were raising a lot of money and, you know, getting these contracts evidently. And so I think things just got supercharged after they mm -hmm. uh, almost made it to orbit. But um, yeah, this is also one of the publicly traded ones. So you can go buy some Asher stock if you're interested. <laughs> cool. <laughs> so let's translate on over to another uh, topic. Um, so yeah, we have some translations. We have a rendezvous later. We're just mm -hmm. moving all over low Earth orbit. Yeah, or well, I assume well, that that's well, where the show takes place. Right. Yeah, we'll, we'll be phasing with uh, with Ben uh, yeah. after the uh, questions, comments, and corrections. <laughs> yeah, so next up, uh, Super Heavy is stacked. Uh, so this is kind of a, you know, a big milestone. It's and amazing. It, it looks truly amazing. It's um, So this thing is being stacked with what I understand is the second largest crane in the world. Oh. Because at first I was thinking the largest, but I think it's the second. It's the second highest crane ever. So that's a cool bit of trivia right there. Wow. Um, just to get this thing up there. Yeah, it's it's pretty impressive. Um, it, what's, in, what's interesting, of course, is that you can see all the... Uh, the TPS tiles mm. on Starship, and the rest of it is is very silver, so it, it has an interesting look to it. Yeah, the the the, the they're often um, just because I guess the crane and the and I wrote in the notes I forget though is what do they call the 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 tower Mechazilla? It's got some goofy name yeah. like that, right? Is it Mechazilla? Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. So so because Mechazilla and um, uh, the crane are basically on the opposite sides of the TPS. So most of the photos are, you're going to see the, the, the belly of Starship. And so that's why, um, but it, it, there, there are some floating out there where you can kind of see it through the crane and Mechzilla, Mechzilla. And uh, just seeing that state, that, that stainless steel, like, you know, that shimmering, you know, shine all the way from the base of the rocket to the tip. That's a really cool view as well. I like that a lot. There are some tweets, some from Elon, some from other sources um, that have some new information on Starship. There's also a very cool three-part YouTube series by Tim Dodd where he basically tours the entire Starship. What, what's it called? Starbase. Uh, Starbase. <laughs> yeah. Where he tours Starbase uh, and he does a little interview uh, with Elon. And, and you know, of course, they're, they're just like talking and walking. And throughout that, he drops some information. Like that's kind of how you get stuff from Elon Musk uh -huh. is he just kind of like casually mentions things. Uh -huh. So, yeah, we might mention a few things. But uh, so some of the new stuff that we learned, um, one thing that I learned from the interview, but I guess um, was also probably a tweet from Elon, was that um, the first stage uh the super heavy will not have folding grid fins and that really was a big surprise to me uh -huh. but i guess it adds less complexity and they don't need to fold down so i guess that was the rationale there yeah because I've, I've heard like 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 during a, an ascent you know if you have them out um i think i'd read this somewhere and, and but not in the context of uh, uh you know a falcon 9 or anything like that but like if you had them out it's kind of like um, uh, the the little feathers on the back of a badminton ball, right? Like there's a there's a mm -hmm. stability you get from them there. But mm -hmm. I would be surprised that having them, you know, in the middle, you know, of the vehicle, actually like more than half the way towards the front of the vehicle during launch, right? I mean, they're I mean they have to, right? They're gonna I guess oh I guess they they can um they can rotate, you know, they can't yes, fold. They so can I guess sneak, they're gonna right. be you know cut like wings as it's uh, on on ascent. They'll they'll rotate so that they're uh, less surface area in the direction of motion, kind of like air like that, wings. That's in, okay. So that part I don't know. I I hadn't heard about that. Um, mm -hmm. That might be the case, but then again, I don't know. I mean, it. I'm not sure how much less surface area it would be because, like, if you rotate them, then uh, you have the sides of them exposed, mm -hmm. and the sides are look like they might have just as much. Yeah, they're solid all the way through. Yeah. yeah. 
there might be just as much total surface area as the fins themselves. Um, so yeah, that's an interesting one. I mean, my guess would be that they would just kind of, you know, like they would just be kind of how they are. Um, uh, that makes sense. One interesting bit of information that um, I learned from the interview is on the Super Heavy, the fins are kind of like in sort of like an X-Wing configuration where they're more to one side. They're mm. not, you mm-hmm. know, um, it's not like a cross. It's more like an X, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Might be the best way to put it. And that's because that'll help. Yeah, that that helps get that first stage rotated into the orientation that they want because the big problem is actually pitch, not the side-to-side motion. So just, you know, having to get, just having to pitch the thing, that's the hard part. And, uh, and apparently this helps with that. The aerodynamics of it are a little bit confusing. I, I would have to I would have to rewatch the video and you know probably think it through a little bit. But um, I thought that that was kind of a very cool piece of information there. Yeah. yeah, and you know we see the TPS on Starship, and I got a pretty good up close look of that uh, during Tim Dodd's interview. Uh, a lot of little tiles there. And at one point, I saw a guy up on a lift. Um, he was like pounding one onto the starship with his hands, which <laughs> I thought was kind of weird. As if he applied glue and then he was just trying to get it to stick. But I'm sure that there's more to it than that. But uh, he was just kind of like, he just kept hitting it. And I was like, okay, is that is that is that how you mount <laughs> well, starship that, tiles? Isn't that how they mounted uh, shuttle tiles? That uh, manually? Might be. Know? Yeah, well, they have to manually, but then you'd think that they would do something other than just like push it. <laughs> but no, I guess it's all you do. You just kind of hit it with your fist a few times, make sure it stays on, and then it's good to go. No kidding. Oh yeah, so so yeah, so the reason why right they so Mechazilla right if, if if you're familiar right that's the the tower that is going to basically catch uh, the the super heavy not on this flight. This super heavy is going to go splash down in the water, but in in general right the idea is that it's got its grid fins out. And basically, it kind of comes back to the tower, and rather than you know coming all the way down to the launch pad, it kind of gets caught in midair by the Mechazilla tower. It'll have some kind of like you know arms essentially coming out, and uh, the the grid fins will rest on the arm. And I guess having that X wing configuration helps with that too. Um, having them on those sides that makes sense as well. Yeah, because you could use all four of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, Exactly. As opposed to just two. Yeah. yeah. Unless unless you're like perfectly aligned, and then even then you're gonna right. <laughs> some of them wouldn't be quite yeah. Uh, taking the full uh, load of the weight of the rest of the super heavy, but yeah, and so so yeah, so evidently I guess they grabbed the uh, the first or second largest crane on the planet or tallest crane on the planet and <laughs> uh, used that to load it. And so I mean again, but if you haven't seen these pictures, um, they are unreal. We'll have them in the show notes. It's um, there's aerial ones from uh, uh, RGV uh, aerial photos, which is again a great uh, account to watch. Again, you know, mm-hmm. someone you know they fly their uh, like a looks like a small airplane and they just fly it over <laughs> uh, Boca Chica all the time, get all these amazing shots of uh, Starbase from above. Um, but there's there's just uh, so many good pictures around, so many with humans and workers. Um, so you have things to scale. Uh, <laughs> it's just... Mm-hmm. It's crazy. <laughs> it's it's just nothing short of wild. Uh, and so from the interview, one cool thing that I just wanted to mention that we had talked about, you know, back when we first found out about, um, you know, this launch was exactly what kind of an orbit uh, this launch will be. It was confirmed that basically Starship is going to go into a full orbit. It's just that it's not going to raise its perigee. And so, it, you know, it's just going to come back down at that point. Yeah. Um, but otherwise, had it done so, uh, then, you know, it would totally be in low Earth orbit. Um, so, yeah, this is a full, like, orbital test flight, 
You know, mm-hmm. I mean, this is the real thing. They just uh, won't raise a perigee. Uh, I think that Elon mentioned that, like, if they did want to raise a perigee, that that would be very, very trivial, that you could do it with, you know, your cold gas thrusters. It's no big deal. Um, it actually requires very little energy. So basically, they just want to make sure that they get it back down again, because obviously, they don't want to keep it in orbit. Uh, sure, they just sure. want to do a quick little flight. And that he will be very happy if it just makes it off the pad. Um, that's basically, <laughs> I mean, that is like the big goal for this launch is he really just wants it to clear the tower because if not, um, that's a lot of damage that they have to fix. Mm-hmm. So it would be better if it blew up somewhere else. This is essentially kind of what I got from it. Yeah. Well, I believe that because, again, I mean, 29 engines uh, on mm-hmm. the first stage alone, that's just uh, unreal. But I guess, you know, you, you maybe realize, you know, because, yeah, they, they're orbiting only once around and not doing a complete orbit because they're going to go and splash down uh, off of uh, one of the Hawaiian Islands. Um, if I remember correctly. And right, I mean, Yuri Gagarin's flight, nobody says that that was not, doesn't count as orbital, but he didn't, you know, he, he basically went once around and landed right where he started. And so that counts. <laughs> yep. Another interesting little fact that was mentioned is that the on-orbit refueling previously we've seen is basically being like butt-to-butt loading, you know, like right, mm. where you just have like two starships like back up to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, it might be side-by-side. And that's actually just for the sake of simplicity because having to refuel from underneath actually is somewhat complex and it, it just adds more complexity to starship. The idea is, you know, just do it from the side and that will add more complexity to the ground equipment, but that's not a big deal. You know, that's, you know, who cares about the ground equipment? Another thing from the interview, I think it would, this was part two. Um, and yeah, the third part will probably be out by the time this episode releases, or maybe by the time this episode releases. I'm not sure when he's planning on putting it out. So the other thing that he mentioned in the second part was that uh, the flap hinges on Starship uh, are very, very tricky. That, that, in fact, if there's any one thing that's going to fail on that vehicle during orbital reentry, that that's going to be it just because of the heat loads. Um, and you have, you know, this huge ball of plasma that it's kind of, you know, sat inside of. And uh, the joints on those flap hinges are obviously very vulnerable because you can't make them out of TPS tile. So they could melt and they could break or who knows what could happen. Um, well, not actually melt, but, you know, yeah. there could be um, some pretty serious structural problems on reentry. So that's something that, uh, that the Elon seems to be very much concerned about. Um, I thought that was interesting because it's a problem that has to be addressed. And it looks like that they're kind of addressing it just by like making sure that it's pretty well shielded. But um, that might be something to keep an eye out for when they actually do have the orbital test. Just assuming that Starship makes it to orbit, uh, what happens from there? Um, I'll be looking at those uh, flap hinges very closely. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, there, there it does seem like there's there's a few places where things can go terribly wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, but that is part of it, and you know, like they say, we uh, we get to watch them and uh, do everything in full view of the public uh, for the most part. So our next orbital raising or whatever you, whatever you <laughs> want to call it, um, our next rendezvous will be with Perseverance's first sampling attempt. Uh, so now we're moving over to Perseverance, um, mm-hmm. or we're going to set down on Mars. So uh, what is going on with Perseverance? Because uh, we haven't mentioned it too recently. Well, maybe we have. I don't know. I know. I, I had no idea about this. And so shout out to Ben for putting this uh, on my radar and in, in, the, in the show notes. <laughs> but yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, evidently, uh, Perseverance's first sampling attempt did not go as planned. And so while that's not, you know, terribly unsurprising given Mars being Mars, but like, uh, it's still a little unfortunate, but, uh, we'll see how it goes. They, they, the, the team seems to be optimistic. But yeah, uh, essentially, you know, they, um, they tried a sampling attempt and no material was collected. 
Perseverance's key mission, right? It's an astrobiology mission. It's going to take uh, dozens of samples, uh, cache them in these little tubes, you know, hermetically sealed and all nice and, uh, you know, secure and everything, and then drop them off for some time in the future when we send a uh, another vehicle that's going to have a fetch rover to scoop them up and then load them onto a Mars ascent. Uh, you know, stage that's going to then take off and rendezvous with a return spacecraft in low Martian orbit, which is then going to head back to Earth and drop them off in a sample. Man, Mars sample return is just uh, mm-hmm. ambitious to say the least, but it's awesome. And I love how it's like phased like that. And they're like, okay, well, you know, we're already committing to getting these samples and dropping them uh, on the surface uh, uh, to get you ready. So, so in any event, yeah, so, so per- perseverance, you know, uh, it basically things seemed to go as far as the system was concerned. There wasn't any issues. Uh, the drill and the bit uh, engaged as planned. It's really long. It's like two meters. Uh, this drill is crazy. Mm-hmm. And um, the sample tube was processed. All the steps were fine. I guess I think it's got all its tubes on its belly. Um, and But what happens is, though, when they want to, you know, test um how much material is in there right uh osiris rex if you remember did that cool thing where they would extend their arm and spin the spacecraft around and basically they could tell from the moment of inertia how much stuff they collected um i think they they didn't actually do that i think because it was leaking because they collected too much but in this case uh, the way uh, perseverance does it is it inserts a little probe in there and based on the resistance that that probe feels they can get an estimate of how much material was collected but basically it was consistent with it just kind of going through air and i don't know tapping the back glass part of the tube or something (laughs) and so um that's uh that's a bit you know worrisome you know i can imagine how deflated the team must have felt i mean they're professionals so i'm sure they got right back to it but uh you know you're kind of getting excited this is our first collection and it's you know uh comes up nada and so uh the the only kind of optimistic uh kind of silver lining is that you know uh, by looking at it and what the system was doing they're thinking that it's probably unforeseen properties of the rock itself um that reacted to the the bore um the the drill and the bit differently and so to kind of uh, assess that uh, they want to use uh, Watson, which is one of the cameras on the arm, and image the borehole and see kind of what it looks like and if there's something there that can kind of explain why. Ah, so that's why nothing would have actually kind of come up and uh, gone into the uh, the sampling tube. But um, yeah, so uh, that's that's not really anything new. Um, they, uh, you know, I mean, most recently we had the HP cubed uh, heat probe on Insight, which uh, was running into dirt crust, which was a problem. Uh, Mars uh, Phoenix lander had issues with the soil. Um, Mars's soil just—it's uh, a pain in the butt. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully, by you know, they they plan to you know again take dozens of these samples, and so if this location was a dud, then hopefully there's enough other there ought to be enough other interesting places that so long as the system is working fine, that they should be able to get uh, a meaningful amount of samples to really revolutionize our understanding of Mars. But- so I, I guess that this does not collect samples in the way like we were talking about last week on the moon. It's not like a coring drill. This is just a drill drill, right? Okay, so I misspoke before and I, I, I kind of started to catch myself. I'm like, that seems really, really deep for uh, uh, the drill. And I think there's there's some other mission. I think it's on the moon that is going to have like a ridiculously deep drill that's going to go, you know, mm-hmm. meters below the surface. The the two meters I was referring to is the length of the arm. So the drill oh, okay. bit itself is only, I, I don't know the exact number, but let's say something of the order of, I don't know, six to 12 inches, right? You know, uh, maybe, a, you know, again, a six or a third of a meter roughly or something like that. That That's basically what then... Uh, uh, you know, goes in, it's, it's, it's hollow essentially, right? And so it goes in cores down through the surface. Okay. And so you've got all the kind of regolith then kind of in the middle 
uh, between where it's being kind of ground down and uh, drilled into. And then that is then picked up, brought into the, you know, uh, the front of the, uh, the arm then kind of sends the collection, uh, you know, bit, I guess, into a, uh, a carousel at the, you know, front of the rover, which then rotates it and brings it to the belly of the rover, where ultimately it's gone and put into one of these uh, sampling tubes. And so really, really interesting system that they have here. And so, um, you know, all the, the, I think a part of, or, you know, the, the big reason why they think that it's not due to the, um, the sampling system uh, having problems is that uh, every test that they've done, both, you know, on Earth with the, uh, I don't know what the name of it is, but, you know, Perseverance as a twin here on Earth that, you know, mm-hmm. you can, you know, basically test things on, uh, but also tests that were done on Mars, uh, all of them worked out fine. I thought one thing uh, I was happy to see, uh, something that I had learned from one of our downlinks going all the way back to episode 187, uh, when we had uh, Richard Witherspoon of Lockheed telling us about Cyrus Rex, is they, uh, ta- in that interview, he talked a lot about uh, witness plates, right? And how basically when you're doing your sampling, you want to have, you know, things that are, you know, hermetically sealed at launch, and then you open them at different points uh, when your sample is collected, and then you have an idea of how much contamination was there from packing up the spacecraft and getting it to the to the, the launch pad. How much contamination during launch, how much contamination on your way to, you know, Mars or Bennu, how much contamination when you got to the surface and so on during the sampling attempt and all that. And so uh, in this case, rather than witness plates, there were witness tubes, apparently. And so they used one of these uh, while they were on Mars to basically see, you know, all right, let's, you know, send this what should be, right, in an ideal world, a totally empty, <laughs> uh, uncontaminated, you know, uh, tube and just see kind of if we can go through the whole, uh, all the motions. Uh, and, and that worked fine. But. Of course, you know, these witness tubes are just meant to tell you, you know, how much contamination should we expect in a typical tube at this point? Because here was an empty one that was sealed, and yet we got such and such uh, um, contamination in there. And so I guess just the last thing I want to say, though, is that, you know, this, like, like I mentioned, right, how ambitious Mars sampling or Mars sample return is. So that means there's a lot that depends on the system working. And so, again, hopefully it's the rock, you know, and just this particular location where it drilled. But if they find out that they can't collect samples with this, um, be, there goes yeah. Mars sample return. That would be weird, though, because, you know, like just like you said, they tested it many times on Earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, they've done I mean, they've done this type of stuff before. I mean, this is not the first time that they've ever collected samples on Mars. I mean, in this case, for shipping back to Earth, I guess. But right, still. right, right. They've scooped up things before, yeah. <laughs> They've, yeah, so they know how the whole scooping thing works. So I think it's probably, you know, just something to do with the geology, um, you know, like your, you know, just that particular area. Maybe they hit like a little dry pocket. <laughs> I yeah, doubt it. That, that, that Dura crust is messing with them again somehow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and so unfortunately, like, yeah, so so the math is, you know, you know, it's it's kind of like low probability but huge stakes. You know what I mean? That if uh, there's a lower probability of this being the system as opposed to, you know, the properties of the rock itself, but the stakes are, you know, billions of dollars and, you know, a decade plus or whatever of planned missions. And so, and I, and I got to admit, if I don't, you know, I'm, I'm, I think this is true based on how I've heard people talking about like, you know, how expensive some missions are, but it's not as though if Mars sample return gets canceled that that money then suddenly kind of just can be easily redirected elsewhere. You know what I mean? You just get what's appropriated to you for those specific things. And so if Mars sample return gets nixed, then I think they would need to basically argue for that kind of budget again for other things. And, you know, that's not always a guarantee. And so it's not as though that necessarily frees up money for, you know, 
other projects, even in the worst case scenario. And so anyway, all of that though is probably too pessimistic and I'm confident and happy and hopeful that, uh, you know, uh, collection number two will happen because we have a lot of smart people that are looking at this now and diagnosing what happened. I think maybe just uh, go 10 feet in some other direction and yeah. try again. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So this week we'll do three short and sweet with just two of us. So Dennis, what is the first one? First up, China Hops. A busy week in Chinese spaceflight that included successful launches of communications and military mapping satellites and an unsuccessful launch of iSpace's Hyperbola 1 launch vehicle also included a short hop with a small reusable test rocket. Deep Blue Aerospace's Nebula M vehicle reached a height of almost 10 meters before briefly hovering and successfully landing with its variable thrust Lighting 5, or Thunder 5, Carolox engine. The test at Tongchuang, Shanxi Province is part of the development of the Nebula 1 launcher, which will be capable of delivering 500 kilograms to 500 kilometers sun-synchronous orbit. The next step for the company is the assembly of the Nebula M2 test stage and a 100-meter hop. Next up, OFT2 slipping from August. Uh, again, just a few hours before its scheduled launch, the Boeing Starliner Orbital Flight Test 2 was delayed due to an unexpected bow position. The Starliner and its launch vehicle in Atlas V were moved back to the vertical integration facility to get a better understanding of the valve issue. So far, the possibility of a software issue has been ruled out. A new launch date has not been set, but if the problem cannot be resolved in time, Starliner might slip even further away from launch to ISS as SpaceX CRS-23 is scheduled to launch soon, which would take up the only other available docking port currently on station. This would result in Starliner being delayed until October. And finally, Blue Origin developing reusable second stage. While earlier rumors that Blue's New Glenn rocket was shifting from aluminum alloy to stainless steel turned out incorrect, they were derived from a kernel of truth. The company has confirmed they are developing a fully reusable upper stage that may use stainless steel propellant tanks. The so-called Project Jarvis is meant to make the vehicle profitable as a direct competitor to SpaceX's fully reusable Starship Super Heavy rocket. Blue's founder, Jeff Bezos, has walled off parts of Project Jarvis from the rest of the development program, evidently hoping to give them an innovation-friendly environment free from rigorous managerial oversight. Hmm. See how that goes. <laughs> okay, stand by. We're looking at it. questions, comments, and corrections, and I guess recommendations of things to watch, um, which we often do. So we have some cool things or things to watch and to listen to. So the first one is an interview with Eric Berger that, uh, and you know, like we're all big fans of him. So, um, yeah. So where can we hear that interview? Yeah. So, I mean, I listened to this, uh, if you're not, uh, listening to, uh, uh, Miko main engine cutoff with Anthony Colangelo, uh, you really should, uh, he gives amazing, uh, insight, uh, into the, you know, uh, the space sector. And he also, you know, brings on these, uh, amazing interviews as well. And so this one with Eric Berger was bang on. I don't want to give any spoilers away. Uh, there's a lot of talk about, uh, Nauka and there's, uh, uh, I'd say even probably more talk about uh, Blue Origin and where they fit in, uh, trying to do what they've been trying to do and seemingly being the, uh, what's it, the Salieri to uh, uh, SpaceX's <laughs> Amadeus, <laughs> kind of like consistently, um, you know, struggling there. But like, it, but it still has uh, an optimistic uh, message, I think, in one sense uh, that I, I had not really considered about how there's, you know, there's more than just launch vehicles when it comes to space. And so maybe they can find mm -hmm. a niche uh, if, uh, if, Bezos is willing to put his ego aside and <laughs> pursue something like that. But um, we'll see. And so in any event, though, it, it's definitely worth a listen to. And so, again, uh, main engine cutoff with Anthony Colangelo, uh, Miko. Go check it out. 
Yeah, and so we also have uh, on Forbes.com a very interesting uh, piece on uh, Dragonfly, right? Which is, uh, I mean, it's in the title. It's a draw-dropping mission. <laughs> and so uh, Jamie Carter, who's a uh, senior uh, contributor for uh, Forbes' science um, articles, uh, basically really does a deep dive into it. And so uh, it, it's covering a lot of different things here, including um, the idea of a sample return mission uh, to Titan. And so, again, yeah, so Dragonfly, remember, right, that is the... Uh, uh, the very large uh, octocopter, you know, drone that is going to be uh, flying around the dunes uh, near the equator of uh, Titan for a, a number of time, uh, a number of years, I think. Really go check it out. It's an interesting read, and you know, it kind of gives you a, a good uh, a good bit of you know the larger context. Also, you know, bringing in you know what about you know missions to Titan versus missions to Europa, for example. You know, and uh, why you know if if we were to do a sample return mission, how would that work? What would be the role of Dragonfly, etc. And so. Uh, a good read. Uh, check it out. And then the third thing, uh, we are having a watch party for a new documentary called The High Frontier, The Untold Story of Gerald K. O'Neill. So this is about O'Neill cylinders. Um, in fact, speaking of something that a Blue Origin could do besides, you know, launch vehicles. Now we, because like, we know that Jeff Bezos is a huge fan of O'Neill cylinders. That's like, you know, his big dream is that he wants to see these in space. And this is where apparently like most of humanity will live, I guess, and that the earth will be something more like a giant, like nature preserve, I think is his vision of the future. So yeah, um, I would suggest that maybe Jeff Bezos watch this documentary. Um, it actually might be available on Amazon, um, which we'll have to get to that in a second. I'm not sure where exactly it's available just yet but we're having a watch party on the 27th of august so later on this month at 6 p.m eastern time i don't think we have too many details just yet on exactly how we're going to pull this off right i mean it's not a big deal but um i don't think we really discussed it this was an idea that i think ben had just a couple hours ago um mm. Yeah, but it'll be a fun time. So yeah, so just stay tuned for more details on that watch party. And yeah, I definitely recommend uh, the documentary. I mean, if, like if you're a space geek, it's just totally worth it. I'm very much interested in O'Neill cylinders. I think they're cool. I don't know how, you know. I mean, it's just so it's a very. It's not anytime soon that like yeah. we're gonna have anything even closely resembling That's an far O'Neill cylinder. Yeah. yeah, but it seems like the only practical. Um, solution to having, you know, people living in space. And if you don't want to live in zero G, which sounds like it would suck, you know, the novelty would wear off quickly and you want <laughs> gravity and you want a lot of space. Well, then that's the way to go. You have to have an O'Neill cylinder. All right. Welcome to the interview segment. I'm very excited about this one. Uh, today we have Danny Gleason. He is the co-founder and chief commercial officer of Rialtra Space Systems Engineering. Um, it's a new, uh, space company out of, uh, Ireland. Um, and they have some big names already, uh, on their client list. So I I'm really excited to, uh, to talk to you today, Danny. How's it going? It's going really well, Ben. I'm looking forward to it as well. Okay. So, um, Rialtra is, was like, uh, created as a subdivision from real time, uh, electronics, I think. Is that the name of the company? Yeah. Real time technologies is an electronic manufacturing company founded 25 years ago. Um, and, Realtra was uh, founded about three years ago as a, as a division, and, and we're solely space, 100% space, space systems engineering. And, and so Realtime was, was doing some space engineering, and did you just segregate that all into one division then? Yeah, there, there's a, a history behind that. So the Realtime's been manufacturing electronics for, um, for the space market for more than 15 years. 
um, through um, it's a supplier to uh, Curtis Wright, a US company that has a division in um, in Dublin, in Ireland. And so the uh, real time was uh, contracted to manufacture all of the electronics for the for the space. In fact, they manufacture the electronics for all the other markets for that particular mm-hmm. type of product um, from from Curtis Wright. I, I didn't realize that they that they had contracted out all of their electronics. That's that's pretty cool. Yeah, for this particular product, this, this particular data acquisition oh, product was was oh, uh, okay. um, acquired. This Curtis Wright acquired a company called Acura Control back in two thousand eleven. And the, so the origin of that uh, technology was um, here in Ireland in uh, back in 1992-93 uh, when Acra was founded. Um, and I was involved with um, Acra since 1997-1998, um, uh, helping get that technology into the space market. You were one of the founders of Realtime, is that correct? I was one of the founders of Realtra. So uh, yeah, in, in oh, okay. 2017, um, I got together with um, some colleagues of mine that were... Um, Kind of, I guess, three three points of a triangle. Uh, I was the uh, commercial business development uh, end with a, a lot of experience in the network in in the space sector, um, and my uh, colleague uh, was a technical guy. And the my other colleague then who was actually the founder of Real Time, the owner of Real Time, uh, as a manufacturer. So we had the you know technical manufacturing and business development is kind of a good starting point for a business. Yeah. Yeah. For real. So uh, before I started um, doing a little bit of organizational research, I I was the question I I really wanted to ask you was like, what does it take um, to, to start a space company? But I guess a better way to, um, to kind of frame that curiosity is like, what does it take to go from a, a very generalized electronics company to a, you know, space application only company. Um, and, and I guess that's a little bit dependent on, on how much non-space work you were doing, uh, at real time before. But like, if you could compare and contrast those two things, that, that's something that's really interesting to me. Yeah. Just, just to clarify. So that real time is, is a manufacturer across a number of sectors. So it manufactures in the, the aerospace, uh, space, medical device, automotive sectors, um, and still does and has done for the last, uh, you know, 25 years. Uh, but as a division, uh, Realtra, as, a, as the engineering division, we're, we design systems uh, and integrate systems um, that are then manufactured by real time. So the, oh, okay. um, the, the ultimate goal has become obviously an independent um, company as a, a spin-off, um, which will happen soon. But the, uh, the focus is 100% on space. So we're, we're all, um, myself and uh, uh, colleagues, that are, we only work on space projects. Um, and the the reason why we founded Realtor in um, in 2017 2018, first of all, there wasn't a 100% electronics, sorry, 100% space electronics company in Ireland in the whole country. There was there was it didn't exist. Com- companies worked in the space sector, but it was only a, a part of what they did. Um, our passion and our um, our belief was that there was a an opening for um, 100% dedicated focused company on in space electronics and space systems and that's where we founded uh, Realtra. Realtra is actually the the Gaelic word for galaxy. We we have a philosophy as well that we're, the galaxy means you know a collection of stars and so on um, and we believe that you know it's through our really uh, through our, our our staff for a start as kind of the core of the of the galaxy but around that you've got the um, our partners, uh, contractors, suppliers, and so on that uh, form an ecosystem that kind of uh, 
galaxy of, of stars that enable us to to do what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't aim to be at this stage, um, have every capability and every competence. But as a startup, you need to have access to that competence. Uh, and that's where the, um, I guess, the collective uh, comes in uh, and why we've been so successful because we've been able to develop those relationships in Ireland uh, and develop those skills in Ireland that enable us to fulfill the, the contracts we have with our customers. Uh, and as you said, we've been um, quite successful today. So if if there hasn't been a dedicated um, space electronics company uh, in Ireland, how does it feel to to be the first? Are, are there is there anything that's unexpected? Are there uh, unexpected benefits or, or challenges there? Um, I think recognition for a start. I mean, there, there have been space electronics companies in the past, um, mm. but not very not active now, and that's really the I guess the key. Uh, from um, from our point of view, the difference uh, is when you say you're a space electronics company. The normal response is, I didn't know we had a space sector or we didn't, didn't know we had a space industry. Um, so there's, um, yeah, there's, there's some work to do to, to ensure that the work we do and the, the projects we work on are, are well, I guess, publicized widely. Mm. The public gets mm. to know that there's some really good stuff going on in, in Ireland. Obviously, Realtra is, is such a, a brand new company. Um, and, and I imagine a, a lot of the reason why it was, or, or division, I suppose, but the, the reason why Realtra was formed three years ago and not 13 years ago has a lot to do with the industry as a whole. You know, we're, we're, um, accelerating in, in how many, uh, dollars we can pay out. Um, but I was wondering from a, from a personal standpoint, what through your career and through your life has, has brought you to the point where you'd be willing or, or I guess even capable of founding uh, a new organization like this? Um, do you feel like you could have done this uh, 13 years ago? Do you feel like you could have done this 23 years ago? Um, and, and if so, what do you feel like personally you have achieved and learned now that makes it uh, a, a more a higher chance of success, I guess. Real good question, actually, uh, Ben. And the uh, ultimately, I'm 35 years in the business. Actually, I started in July 1986 in the space business, and um, it takes a long time. It's like an apprenticeship, I guess, to get that grounding and background in the in the sector. So I've worked in a range of sec- range of, of projects, of course, across that period and, and range of countries, including the US. Um, and that builds a, a kind of background. And I've been with business development for a lot of that time, uh, as well as technology development. Um, and I guess it came to the point where you always feel, that, okay, I'm doing this for someone else and I'm being successful for someone else. It's about time I was successful for myself. Um, and I was able, lucky enough to find colleagues that, that felt the same way and we could come come together and form Realtra. Um, and then we're really lucky on an exponential scale, I think, luckwise, with the the team that we've been able to put together with the um, our employees and um, our, our management staff are um, a real uh, rock that we build the uh, the real trip business on. So, Danny, uh, could you? I recognize, right, as a, as a company, um, what exactly, uh, you know, what do you focus on as as you know a spinoff or not a spinoff, but a division of uh, of real time? So that's uh that's important to to get across where what we do who we are mm. and, and why we do it as as the title of the company uh, suggests uh, it's realtor space systems engineering so our 
mission is to deliver solutions uh, at system level and subsystem level uh, based on integrating uh, electronic systems or electronic uh, units. By that, it means um, we can also act down into the into the electronic design. So we could we and we do design custom electronics. We design um, custom electronics for the for the space environment. And we have that um, we have what we call three legs of our stool from electronics electronics perspective. The first leg is what we call custom electronics for for deep space. Um, you call rad hard electronics, high reliability electronics, the likes of um, our Plato mission that we're developing uh, electronics for, which is a deep space planetary um, observation and um, planetary exploration mission. That's a that's a class what you call classic uh, deep space electronics. You'd be familiar with for types of satellite, the geostationary satellites or science mission um, uh, spacecraft that require electronics, which are highly reliable and also tolerant to to radiation and so on, um, and work over an extended temperature range and so on. So that's the that's really one one leg of our stool. And the reason for that is um, credibility again. So we come back to, to the, the word credibility. When, you're, when you understand how to design um, for a mission in deep space for five or 10 years uh, with all those uh, challenges from a, a design perspective, from electronics uh, perspective, um, then that's really that's where the, you're, you're, you gain your credibility. You earn your credits in, in that, uh, that field. Our second leg of the stool builds on that, but it looks at uh, using existing electronics or COTS electronics, uh, commercial off-the-shelf. These electronics um, exist, and they may exist uh, and never intended for use in space. They are basically electronics that you would find in uh, in the home or, or in the industry or, or anywhere uh, in any other other than space. Uh, so they're never intended or designed for use in a radiation environment or a vacuum or or survive the the vibrational shock of of a launch. And one of our areas of expertise is actually taking that kind of uh, cost electronics or standard electronics and um, adapting it um, for use in a space environment. Um, and that's a big deal because to to lower the cost of development. For new new projects, particularly in new space, as they call it, and um, you everyone is looking to lower cost and lower the recurring cost, lower and also shortening the time to market. So from when you have an idea for a system and then you have an idea for a service, you want to shorten the time and the cost of, of actually delivering it. And one one area that everyone is interested in is COTS electronics. So what do we actually have that exists already on the ground in, in whatever area it is, whether it's automotive, uh, aviation, or, or any of the other uh, industries that uh, use electronic systems? Um, what uh, what do we have to do to, to use those pre-existing electronics, pre-existing systems uh, in a space environment? A lot of the development, uh, I guess, the development environments, software environments already exist for those. So it's a big deal that you don't have to start from scratch and you save time, money and risk from doing that. The third leg of the stool for us is is really new stuff. So this is what you call unique IP that we're developing that relates to, to um, again, those techniques for using high-performance electronics in the space environment. Um, and there are certain techniques we're uh, developing in-house, which make it uh, even more attractive to use uh, electronics that you might uh, might be surprised um, where they come from, but we can adapt those for uh, for use in, uh, in in space missions. That le- you saved the best leg of the stool for last. Um, so so you're actually generating IP, or I guess claiming IP, 
over the application of COTS components? It's yeah, the techniques that enable that to happen. So the um, I mean, COTS components have been flown in space since the Mercury program, um, mm-hmm. and you know it's been it's a well tried and tested method of of, of you know pr- getting COTS components and then screening them or or testing them um, and enabling you to use them in in space. So you don't create a new component, but you use COTS mm-hmm. components and you you do a lot of testing to ensure it can be used. That's that's a component level. What we're focused on is at an integrated level. So it's all about a board, you know, what you call a PWB, a printed wiring board, a printed circuit board with, you know, system level or a unit or equipment level. Um, And that's a different... different technique uh, than, than just a component level because as I said component level has been used since the beginning of the space program you know COTS components but uh, COTS equipment is a different thing uh, of course they do use COTS equipment in, in, in space missions you have laptops on the space station and so on however we're talking about functional elements of spacecraft so they're talking about functional elements which mean well, the onboard computer the data acquisition data handling systems uh, and so on and so on which would t- typically be used Will be designed around very expensive um, you know, high rail or, or, or custom components, which are um, a very high barrier for, I guess, new space when they're trying to be competitive. They want to mm-hmm. look at using lower cost solutions, and that's where we come in. So, so I I don't want to uh, sound like I'm I'm asking you to give up all your secrets, but like, could you give an example of um, taking a, a COTS component and coming up with um, a, a way to actually apply it in in an appropriate way like i i think that's absolutely fascinating and if you had a, a practical example or, or a theoretical example that could stand in as a practical example i would i would love to hear it yeah there, there's a couple of things that i guess I'm, i won't talk about in, in specifics of course but i will uh, uh, in general terms that there, there are ways that you make obviously systems operate uh, in a space environment um, and I guess there's, there's a few steps. And one of them is you start with the basic electronics that you would find in, in, in a you know, ground application or a non-space application. And you do what's called a, a, a test program to evaluate its boundaries. So you, you would test, um, test the item, for example, in, in, in a vacuum chamber over a range of temperatures. Does it operate at all? Uh, is, it, is it designed thermally? Or can it be designed, uh, or can it operate thermally in um, in a specific environment? So you do a lot of testing to see what the uh, capabilities of a particular product are, a particular electronics product in in the environment. You then may find that there's some adaptation required, and that might be a thermal adaptation, which is uh, you know increase the thermal pathways, uh, ensuring that the heat gets out, because typically things aren't op- designed to operate in a vacuum, so they um, you need to improve the thermal. Um, uh, pathways to enable heat to escape, which means the components can operate within their temperature range in a vacuum. You also then uh, you might find materials. There may be some materials which are not compatible with the vacuum. Things that outgas or provide uh, you know give off nasty things that condense on uh, on optical surfaces. You you need to get rid of those or replace them with um, with uh, materials that don't do that. And the the next step is uh, I guess the most important step is the um, Qualification. So you actually take the customer requirements, uh, you take your electronics that you've now um, examined, adapted, and you qualify them within those uh, that range of requirements. That might be 
um, vibration, shock, uh, thermal, um, a vacuum, that type of thing. Even radiation. Radiation is a big one because normal commercial electronics, for, they're just not designed to survive in radiation environments. Uh, so you can figure out how to sort out thermal. You can figure out how to sort out mechanical. Uh, but radiation is a real big deal. It's very difficult to sort that out um, and protect against it without um, increasing shielding, for example. But that just increases mass. Mass is a bad a bad parameter in the in the uh-huh. space industry. You need to reduce mass, not increase mass. So some of the techniques about uh, uh, providing a um, a solution for the radiation issue um, are done at the system level. So you look at what the system requires and what the requirements are, for example, for uh, reliability or um, uh, availability in in the in the mission. And if you understand the environment, radiation environments, so you use radiation modeling to understand what the radiation environment is in that particular mission, um, you can actually um, adapt the system to operate with perhaps multiple u- u- multiple versions of this uh, commercial product uh, in redundancy. That might help in, in meeting the, the requirement. Or you might find that you don't have to double up or treble up on, on things that is simply um, the probability of an event happening is acceptable because events do happen and radiation events do happen um, but the probability of it happening might be acceptable to the customer so you still get to use a cost, uh, low cost system you understand that it could fail but the customer accepts that risk um, and he accepts that risk because they um, the cost benefit is is high so you're, um, if you want to go to to be absolutely 100% sure that you're never going to fail your costs dramatically <laughs> increase if you need to to yeah. deliver a system availability that is acceptable then you can choose to use uh, systems that are not necessarily radiation tolerant but can be um, sufficiently tolerant to give you an acceptable um, uh, availability for your, for your system. At the end of the day, customers want to achieve a particular mission and they have a particular budget and uh, so they have to work I guess trade-offs within that budget. Uh, what do they want to do? what risks they can take. So it's, it's definitely a system engineering issue um, as that they, and you consider all aspects. Um, you don't go directly on route one to rad hard. You might look at all aspects of the mission to ensure that you're, um, you can provide the solution and an acceptable risk within the budget and within the timescales, of course, that, that are needed because with using COTS components, COTS, uh, sorry, COTS equipment, your um, timescales can be dramatically reduced um, Compared to going from a you know custom design that type of thing. So you you are able to very nicely break it down into three <laughs> categories ultimately, right? Custom space electronics, uh, cots, and adapting that, and then the IP uh, related to the techniques. Was this how, how exactly did this um this you know picking three different you know things to focus on in this way? How did that come about? Was it just you know seeing what the market was asking for? Was it just techniques that were developed while working as uh, still part of uh, real time? Or yeah, like exactly how did these uh, come about? It's a combination of uh, what the market is demanding, it, the markets that we wanted to address, and the I guess the vision for the company in developing, a, because we're 100% space, um, we want to develop the capabilities internally to um, deliver in in that range of markets, the the custom you know deep space mission market is 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 narrow and and not um, not very deep. So in terms of the volume of, of projects or volume of products that you're going to deliver to that market, that's that's quite small. However, the the um, ability to develop uh, 
your electronic capabilities for, for work op operating in space within a program. So you, you basically the, use the program to develop your, your, um, your technologies is very high. And so you leverage that into, into the other markets, into the, the COTS markets and the, and the other markets in, in, the, um, in developing products and so on that can, can operate on a, more, on a higher volume scale, so to speak, that might not be high rail or, or radiation hard as they are in the custom market. In the COTS market, we had a lot of experience. So I think we're what, one thing that comes across here is that the three legs are based, based on our experience and based on what we're capable of as a team. Uh, we have, all of us have experience of at least one of those legs deeply um, and some of us in, a bit more in, in each of those um, in terms of operating in uh, projects that were deep space, rad hard, you know, classic space. Classic deep space. Um, a lot of us have experience in the COTS market as using space, um, using COTS electronics in in the space uh, space systems. Um, and then the the third one, the research arm, um, developing new techniques, really was um, so in terms of new product development. Any company only survives on its innovation and ability to, to I guess, address new issues um, and and develop solutions. And so that's our research arm. We know we need a um, to focus on new new techniques, new approaches, and um, we have a you know a lot of experience, a lot of uh, uh, intelligence within the uh, within the team to come up with uh, innovative solutions to uh, to these problems uh, which we face every day, but also what we face long term in terms of providing I guess value added and um, lower cost solutions for our customers. I'm curious. Um, you have worked in the non space sector and now you're working in space exclusively. What are the differences there? You know, like in terms of business practices, or is it fairly similar? And I imagine you just talked about having to innovate and I'm guessing, and at first I was thinking, well, you know, this is a field of, you know, huge innovation, but at the same time, I don't know if it's actually that much more like innovative than, you know, having to work in the non-space sector just because, you know, that's how industry works. Yeah, it's a, it's a good question. Uh, personally, I've only ever worked in the space sector, so I'm... Oh, okay, you've only ever... Okay, yeah, that's right. Okay, well, I'm I'm sure... Well, the Yeah, I, uh, I wrote that question. I wrote that question earlier this morning, and I, I forgot that we already kind of covered that. I, I tell you, the, um, the the interesting thing, though, uh, and one of, the, I guess, the backgrounds to, to Railtra is... Um, Space, space is, is just is just another sector. So from a business perspective, it has all of the characteristics of any business. You, you have to make a profit. <laughs> you you, uh, you have customers. You have deadlines. You have to deliver um, you know, to specification and so on and so on. You have standards in your industry. Um, you have uh, all of these things. You have employees and you have all the issues around uh, recruitment, uh, retention, uh, and so on. So... Uh, what we wanted, I think what you need to be, first of all, before you're a space business is a good business. And you have to have customers, you have to have a market, you have to have a, a good um, vision of where you want to go and what, what you're trying, issues you're trying to address in the market. So I think that's clear, clear it became clear to us that um, you can have any idea you want in the space sector, you can uh, be as uh, as passionate as you want about the space sector. But if you want to make a business of it, then you've got to be a good business first uh, and get all the business principles that any business has to face, whether you're a corner shop um, or, or you're a, you know, a large multinational, you all have to face the same uh, same things as a, a space business. So I think understanding that, um, we need to uh, try to address that in the, the way we, those three market segments we talked about are important because they have different business cycles. The classic business, the classic space 
high rail, uh, rad hard, deep space missions, a very long program. So there could be five years from beginning to end, maybe even longer. Um, and they have a, a classic um, program flow of phase A to phase phase D and phase E post-flight. Um, and very, um, how can I put it, uh, structured extremely you know and 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 structured in a way which is uh, almost standardized in the industry Uh, so you know what a review is you know what's expected uh, and you know what stage you're supposed to be at and uh, and what level of design detail is needed and what information is needed and so on at various review points and how critical they are and how they're handled they're also important from a contractual point of view because they relate to payments so you on deliveries against these milestones you you have payments so it's really important to know what you need to deliver in order to get paid and it's not it's not just the product so you're not simply um you know putting it in a box sending it by um uh, courier to to your customer and getting paid it's not that straightforward it's uh, you're getting paid in intermediate steps as you as you pro- progress towards that final point of delivery uh, and proving that you have the um, you know preliminary design uh, and you've proven through analysis and test you, and then you get into critical critical design and you're freezing things to uh, become a, f- a final design qualification of that design against the requirements and finally delivery of a flight model this can take years so the payment cycles are very different and they tend to be in any anyone in the industry will tell you the the payment cycles tend to be um stretched beyond what you originally mm. planned because <laughs> of delays and so on in the uh in the other sector the cot sector that's much, that has faster cycles so we're talking about a number of years as opposed to four or five years or maybe even less in some instances um and we're operating in in both of those sectors and with both of those cycles. And one interesting, uh, I guess, uh, output of that is if you have a slow cycle and you intersperse it with a faster cycle, you kind of fill the gaps, so to speak. Um, you kind of smooth things out. From a business perspective, that's the that's the goal. It doesn't always work. But it's, it's an interesting um, interesting concept from the, a business point of view. Take the, the slower cycle, which is the classic space, and you intersperse that with a faster cycle, which is COTS, and you, you, you tend to smooth out the, um, the financial cycles. So I think I, I heard about Rialtra specifically uh, with regards to the work that you guys are doing on ESA's Ariane 6 launcher, right? It's Ariane 6 or Ariane 5? Both. Both. Oh, great. Awesome answer. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, I'm proud, I'm proud to say. <laughs> yes, you should be. So I was wondering what it's, what it's like to work with ESA as, you know, as a supplier. Um, and maybe if you could, um, compare that with what it's like to work with other organizations. It, you know, ESA's, uh, a very conglomerate kind of organization. Is that an aspect that you that you run into, or are you working with a, a particular division, or like what does this feel like? Uh, yeah, just just to to um, to clarify that. So we're very familiar with, with ESA as an organization. So it's an international treaty based organization. You know, with a couple of dozen countries uh, throughout Europe. Um, based on a, a kind of a contribution to the global ESA budget based on their GN, GNP or GDP, one of the two. Um, so the contribution of Ireland to the to the overall ESA budget is quite quite small. And that uh, for all countries, the funding comes back to the country on a pro- program called Geo Return. So it's a, it's a principle of the treaty that they signed mm-hmm. that if countries put in a fund uh, or funding element, it comes back to that country uh, in contracts to, to industry. Um, and they operate, a lot of the programs are operated on a competitive basis. 
And the, the role of ESA is, in fact, in managing technology development, support programs in Earth observation, telecommunications, human exploration, uh, navigation, and uh, and so on. Um, and the, all of the technologies around that, and launchers, of course, and the, the launcher, uh, launcher program. So the... Uh, all of those missions that support those programs are ultimately delivered by industry. Um, and the funding for that is distributed by ESA um, in, a, in, in a competitive way, respecting the fact that if a country contributes a few million, it gets back a few million in, in the contracts for a specific um, uh, technology element or product element for the um, for the missions. That's a general term is what ESA is like. It's it's highly bureaucratic, highly structured, um, um, and I've dealt with ESA for the last 35 years, so I'm very familiar with the ins and outs, um, and I've, I've largely had a very good experience. Uh, they're they're uh, populated with very passionate people and, and really, really good at what they do, uh, and really good at supporting uh, industry development. For one of the basic, uh, uh, I guess, remits of ESA is um, developing industry capability in Europe for for the sp- for space, for delivering these space programs. So they're very interested in when new companies uh, appear, uh, interested in the uh, in the space market, that they're well supported by, by ESA um, in specific programs that are targeting small companies rather than all of the big companies gobbling up all of the, the work, um, uh, which they... they um, they could do, but that doesn't develop uh, smaller companies. It doesn't really help innovation because innovation is really driven, I think, by by small companies largely. Um, and a uh, larger number of smaller companies, you have a distributed intelligence, so to speak, a better environment for, for developing new products, innovation and, and new techniques and trying out things at low risk. Uh, so I think that's, that's, that's ESA. I've gone around the houses a bit because the ESA is one element. The Ariane program is developed is is funded under the ESA launcher program in a kind of a public private financing. The co-financer at industry level is the Ariane Group. So our contract, in fact, is with the Ariane Group um, for the development of our um, video telemetry system for for the Ariane launches. So our relationship is directly with the Ariane Group, uh, contractually, technically, uh, engineering wise. We proposed that um, activity to Ariane Group, and we were on con- put on contract in mid 2019. And of course, early 2020, COVID hits, so we have a huge mm-hmm. challenge to um, continue the development and, and continue the testing. But in fact, just a, last week or a couple of weeks ago, we delivered our flight model. So we've gone through a whole program mm-hmm. from beginning to end. Um, including all of the uh, uh, development, reviews, uh, testing, integration uh, in a two-year period, which is pretty unheard of from um, in our industry anyway, uh, even in the in the in the COTS uh, area. The success of that uh, project is is down to a really good relationship with uh, working relationship with with uh, with the team in Ariane Group. Um, really passionate uh, about their uh, their industry. Very passionate about their. Uh, systems they're working on about the Ariane launcher and super to work with I have to say so the um, I first had this experience actually back in the US uh, I worked with Donald Douglas in California in, in the early 90s and it was a system engineering uh, um, group that I worked in um, on a particular project but the, the close working relationship across a number of disciplines kind of reduced the time to, to find solutions because everyone kind of understood what was happening at, in, in different parts of the system 
and they communicated almost continuously um, to to iterate back and converge on a, you know, a good solution. And this is sort of uh, they call it co-engineering. It can be called uh, there's other things it's called. Um, I'm trying to think of the word, but the, the the aspect is really working together. So working together as a team, a team-based uh, approach, multifunctional team-based approach to achieving a you know a common goal and ensuring that communication channels are, are very clear, open, and uh, frequent to um, ensure this uh, convergence on solutions is um, fast. And this is the this is what we've experienced, and this is what, I guess the reason why we've been successful in in that short term. Um, and uh, the system we developed, the, the video telemetry system for, for Ariane, was also selected for Ariane 5. So it was developed, in fact, on a pathway to Ariane 6, the new launcher. And we um, it was selected for Ariane 5, specifically, in fact, for the, uh, the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, which will happen uh, at the end of this year, um, all going well. So when you see... Fingers crossed. When you see the HD video from... Uh, the James Webb launch on Ariane 5 in December, and you see the fairing separate, and then you'll see James Webb telescope uh, separating from the upper stage. That's our system that's delivering the uh, <laughs> the video. To, uh, so no pressure, really. Um, yeah. <laughs> that is so cool. And uh, to our listeners, we're going to have another interview coming out uh, before that launch, hopefully hopefully in two weeks' time, talking with uh, a, a, another engineer from uh, Realtra, uh, John E. And uh, I, I'm very excited because we're going to be talking to him about this camera. So d- hold your horses. <laughs> we're going to get there. Yeah, he's, he's, Johnny's our senior engineer, and he's... Uh... He, he he has deep deep knowledge of the uh, the system and uh, everything it took to deliver it to Ariane Group. That's going to be a, a pure joy. Well, Danny, thank you so much for your uh, wonderful insight into Rialtra and what you all are doing. And so, uh, where would you like to be found on the internet? So you can find us at uh, www.realtra.space. Um, our Twitter handle actually is at Realtra Space, one word, um, and you'll find us at uh, on LinkedIn. And that's R-E-A-L-T-R-A, real true. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Links in the show notes as always. Okay. So normally we, we have sort of a, a jump scare final question. It, it's normally um, if you could take one object into space with you, what would it be? But I want to try out a new uh, final question. And this, this is more of a game. Uh, it's a game called Overrated Underrated. So I've got uh, five, five topics here. Uh, and if you could give me a quick fire uh, response to whether... Each of these topics is overrated or underrated in our society today. Does that sound good? That's great. Go ahead. All right. Okay. Overrated, underrated. Working in space tech. Underrated. Okay. Overrated, underrated. Working solely on Earth tech. Overrated. (laughs) Uh, Overrated, underrated. Custom space hardware. Oh, underrated. Overrated, underrated. Cots space hardware. Oh, underrated. And the last one, overrated, underrated space tourism. Oh, overrated. Overrated. Okay. <laughs> yeah, All right. There we go. All right. I, I like you. We're we're on the same page here. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for spending this last uh, hour with us. Um, I, it, I mean, it's going to get cut down a little bit less, but um, th- this has just been um an absolute joy and pleasure, and uh, we we really do appreciate your time. I know that this is time taken out of your day to to come talk to a couple of nerds so thank you so much it's been my pleasure and from a fellow space nerd uh, thanks very much (laughs) all right 
This week in Spaceflight History, um, we're back to having some winners because we got a you know a clue with the correct date attached to it. So, um, <laughs> so the winners for this week we have uh, Ben Haller, Deskin Miller, Bill Baobob, or Bill Boabob, uh, the Greek. And that's it. Four people. But hey, that's better than no one. <laughs> no, no, that's four people. Four people is great. That yep. means it, it was a fantastic clue that was good, but not great. And and everybody like nailed both halves of the clue. So uh, Dennis, you you wrote the clue. Oh, no, I wrote oh, the clue. Yeah. Okay. Well, well, great job, David. It was a, it was a good clue. Mm, I appreciate it. Yeah. And uh, and the clue was when I get hot, I get dizzy and lose my bearings. You guys ran it past me, and I was like, yeah, I'm I'm on board. Okay. So this week in spaceflight history is the 10th of August, 1966. It was the launch of Lunar Orbiter One, which was the first U.S. spacecraft to orbit the moon. Oh boy, this is, this is such a, a cool mission. I love early space because so much went wrong, but so much went right <laughs> at the same time. And it just, it, it gets my heart, uh, fluttering, like thinking about doing all these things for the first time, like ever. I mean, like obviously, um, lunar orbiter, the U.S. did not get an orbiter around the moon first. Um, they also didn't get a lander on the moon first, but like, you know, figuring out how this stuff works is, is so cool. Um, and it, it, oh, I, I'm so proud of us humans for being able to have so few <laughs> failures early in our spaceflight campaigns. Okay. So, uh, Lunar Orbiter One, uh, is a, a pretty basic looking spacecraft. It's got three decks. There's like the, uh, the power and, uh, I, I had the names of all the decks, but it's like powers on the bottom, navigation and pointings in the middle, and then science is on top. It's something like mm. that. Um, but it's, it's three decks, uh, supported by trusses and an arch. Um, and it, it's, I mean, not, uh, not a tiny spacecraft. It has four. Oh. Oh, that's right. So one of the, um, one of the decks is just for propellant. There, there was, um, three giant nitrogen, balls it's like a kilogram worth of nitrogen in each um i mean it, it's it's a great looking spacecraft it's got four solar panels that fold out um into uh, an x shape um and those solar panels are basically square now these solar panels the the span from edge to edge uh when they're unfolded is 3.72 meters um so i mean like you know it's a, it's a not a small spacecraft not the biggest spacecraft, but like, just like you said during the interview, Dennis, like we really went into this, uh, this period of, of launching no small satellites. And, you know, of course it comes down to technology advances and, and different ways of thinking, but like, yeah, lunar orbiters today, you know, can be a, a CubeSat and this is not that. Lunar Orbiter 1 was primarily designed to photograph landing sites for the Surveyor program and the Apollo program. Um, if you look at images of where they actually took photos on the moon, there, there's some really nice maps and there will be one in the, in the show notes. It, it seems like this is a weird, a weird way to go about this, um, this goal of photographing uh, landing sites because the far side of the moon has much larger areas photographed. Um, the near side, they basically took photos straight across the equator and, uh, in coverage maps are just like little tiny dots, dot, 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 dot. And then the far side has these giant, uh, warped, uh, squares, 
um, you know, that represent a, a square, uh, a square exposure projected onto a round surface, right? We know what that looks like, but there's huge coverage on the far side and, and not a lot of coverage on the near side. And all of these missions all landed on the near side. Um, and, and that, that seems really weird, but you, you just have to think about it for a hot second. The vehicle had the ability to do high, medium and low resolution imagery. Um, they lumped the two. Actually, no, I think the, the resolutions, it was just high and medium resolution. And then they, um, did three exposures of each. The high exposures were, or the, uh, the high resolution exposures were taken on the near side. The low resolution exposures were taken on the far side. Roughly speaking, they did actually do low resolution on the near or medium resolution on the near side as well. But, you really want to concentrate your your good photos on the near side. This was also exacerbated by the high orbit that they entered when they first uh, captured around the moon. So you get really big areas from far away on the far side, and that kind of tells more of that story. Um, they took 42 high-resolution images and 197 medium-resolution images. They uh, covered more than 5 million square kilometers of lunar surface. And uh, most of those photos were usable. Some of the early uh, high-resolution images that they returned were really smeared out, and it had to do with timing in the camera. And then they, they also had some double exposure issues. And we'll talk a little bit more about the photography issues. But for the most part, uh, the images that they got back were, uh, were quite usable and, um, they, they did a good job. Um, so the primary mission was to photograph these landing sites. They had a couple of secondary objections. They wanted to collect radiation data, um, on board were some cesium iodide, uh, dosimeters. Um, they also wanted to collect, uh, micrometeoroid impact data, and they actually detected zero micrometeoroids. I think that means that their detector wasn't sensitive enough. <laughs> I don't think you can orbit the moon without getting hit by something. Um, and then finally, they wanted to collect uh, selenodetic data. And I saw the word selenodetic, and I recognized selene as uh, as the moon. And I went, what the heck is odetic? <laughs> or I guess it's sel seleno. Geodetic. Yeah, seleno is, and then detic, right, exactly. So uh, uh, selenodetic data is data collected in service of Selenodyssey, Seleniodyssey, uh, study mm -hmm. of the, the shape of the moon, basically. I, I think if you're talking about geodesy, you also are including like plate tectonics. Is that fair to say, Dennis? I think it's just a measurement of the gravitational field. Oh, okay. 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 Uh, and those differences. So, okay. So maybe, maybe it can be applied to, uh, um, tectonic shift, but obviously that's not something that occurs on the moon. So it, it's a fairly limited, uh, scope. So the vehicle was launched uh, on the 10th of August and it successfully got into a parking orbit and it successfully performed its translunar injection burn 30 minutes after uh, getting up into that parking orbit. Then after TLI, things started to get uh, off nominal, let's say. So first there was a star tracker on board. Um, this was one of the first um, US satellites to not have or to not be roll stabilized. Obviously, if you're taking photos, it's highly advantageous to be stabilized in three axes, but it's, it's a lot harder to do. So, um, they used a star tracker that 
could um, track Canopus, the star. It, it's so funny. Every time I see the words Canopus Star Tracker, I assume that the capital C in Canopus uh, indicates that the the proper noun here is the name of the system. And Canopus sounds like such a Russian uh, system name, doesn't it? <laughs> but uh, every single time I have to remind myself, oh, right, there's a star named Canopus. Um, so anyway, the, the Star Tracker failed to acquire a lock on Canopus. Um, and we're not 100% sure, right? But it sounds like uh, it's due to reflections off of the satellite body. Now, you can ask me why that wasn't caught during testing. And I don't know. And neither does NASA, as far as I can tell. Uh, that's something that absolutely should have been caught during the design phase. And if not the design phase, during the testing phase. And it, it just wasn't. So... You know, your, your ding ding satellite's too bright and is blinding itself. What do you do? And, and w when I say blinding itself, it, it was bad. Uh, this, the signal line voltage was 1.5 times greater than they expected it to be. So that's like 1.5 times the number of photons hitting your sensor than, than you would like. Uh, it's, it's not great. Um, so, so what do you do? They developed this alternate procedure. Um, they basically had until their mid-course correction burn to figure it out. And it's really simple. They just decided to use the moon as their role reference, right? Because that's what the Star Tracker does. It gives you a role reference. The problem is uh, the moon's bigger, uh, so that's, that's not ideal. But the, the real issue here is that you have to tilt your vehicle to be able to acquire the moon. And when they did that, the vehicle started overheating because it's getting different surfaces exposed to sunlight than, uh, than it was designed for. We'll talk more about the overheating issue in a little bit. But once they got to the moon, the moon no longer is a good role reference. And so what they did was they relied entirely on their IRU. And whenever they went into the shadow of the moon, they were able to lock onto Canopus. So they could point the vehicle in the right direction, get a lock on Canopus, and basically calibrate the IRU, and then, you know, go back, go back to work. I don't know how often they did that, but it sounded like it was, you know, fairly often, uh, every couple of orbits. While they were on the way to the moon, um, trying to to figure out this uh, Star Trekker issue, they actually added about 10 kilometers worth of thrust or worth of speed just because of their, um, their pointing instructions. So if you're doing um, trajectory or, or pointing um, changes, um, if your thrusters are pointed in a balanced direction, you know, you do three to the left, three to the right, you, you get no thrust. Um, but, what they were doing actually wound up with most of them being pointed back towards Earth. And so they actually picked up uh, about 10 kilometers worth of additional speed when they got to the moon. Kind of sucks, but um, it was a known discrepancy and they had no problem just rerunning the numbers uh, to take care of it. So the overheating. The overheating only happened after TCM, and that's because they weren't pointing the star tracker at the moon up until TCM. So what they wound up having to do 
to solve that issue was to roll the vehicle 36 degrees off sun uh, for eight and a half hours at a time. So, so Ben, can I ask, I, I think um, when you're referring to 10 kilometers more thrust, uh, 10 kilometers uh, in, in what sense? Like not delta V, let's <laughs> right. say, not 10 kilometers yeah, per second. <laughs> yeah, uh, my car has a max speed of five miles. Right. It, uh, <laughs> uh, units mismatched. Thank you. So, so what it actually was, was... Um, uh, they have a planned insertion point and they were, uh, 10 kilometers or less away from that insertion point in, you know, left, right, up, down direction. I don't know how much speed they actually added, but it wound up. Yeah. Actually, I, I said that they, that all of the, uh, accelerations were all pointed back at earth. Um, but I, I'm not sure if that's actually the case, but either way. Yeah. Um, the insertion point was, was 10 kilometers or less off. Okay. That makes sense. Thank yeah. you. And, and it, it's, it's a, uh, it's an approximation, right? Cause we don't really know where anything is. <laughs> we can guess. Okay. So to solve, uh, the overheating issue, um, what they decided to do was to roll the vehicle 36 degrees off sun, uh, for eight and a half hours at a time. You nominally, you really want your, um, your solar panels pointed at the sun. Uh, and so by putting them 36 degrees off the sun, you take a hit to power generation, but you boost your power or your, your thermal dissipation uh, abilities. Trust me, we're going to go into detail. <laughs> and uh, they, they timed the last one. They normally did it for eight and a half hours. They wound up doing a seven and a half hour uh, off sun pointing uh, maneuver, uh, right up before they did their insertion burn so they could get the best thermal conditions. And they kind of like wedge, you know, time everything out, get that last one in there. And as annoying as all this is, they didn't really have, they, they managed it well, let's say. Um, the, mm. This, this pointing maneuver was, was just fine up until they entered moon orbit. Um, after they were around the moon, they started to have, um, some additional issues that started cropping up after a period of time. Um, but it, it worked perfectly uh, on the way to the moon. So, so they get to the moon, um, they enter 189 by 1,867 kilometer orbit. That's uh, 118 by 1,160 miles. Uh, they, they enter this orbit. It's, uh, I, I like to think of orbits in in terms of the period, because it just, it's a better way for me to visualize it. So this is a three hour, 37 uh, minute uh, orbital period. Um, they hung out there uh, for, I think like a week. And by the end of the month, right? Remember they launched uh, on the 10th of August. Um, they got there, I think 90 hours. It was a 90 hour cruise. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, and then they, mm -hmm. uh, they were in this high orbit for a little bit. And then by the end of the month, they had lowered it and they actually lowered twice, uh, first to 58 kilometers and then 40.5 kilometers. And that, that's the, the paraloon gets lowered. The, the apaloon is, is always going to be high up over the, the back end. And while they were there, uh, they accomplished 75% of their imaging goals. That's really good for a vehicle that had as many problems as I will continue to go into. Um, they got a satisfactory coverage of all nine potential Apollo sites. Like that was like, bingo, got it. They also took, uh, photos of 11 far side, 
uh, sites that they wanted to photograph. And then that's, that's where they really focused their efforts. Some of their secondary photographic, uh, objectives were where the, um, the extra 25% that didn't get done, uh, to, that's where that hit was taken. So some of their, uh, alternative objections were, um, uh, mission B, uh, landing sites, uh, major craters, uh, Apollo navigation landmarks. And, and that's pretty cool because like you need to be able to navigate by eye. And like when you see, um, Apollo astronauts like pouring over images of their landing sites and, and their, uh, their navigation landmarks. Some of those photos were taken on this mission. Um, the, the very first mission mm. where we actually put something into orbit around the moon, we, we got great usable data. We got early Apollo site imagery so we can start narrowing down our choices. It's just, it, it's so cool. Now, the vehicle was intended to operate for a year, um, but they ended up uh, impacting on the far side of the moon at the end of October. Um, it, it operated for just two and a half months. There were a bunch of reasons that went into that. And I thought this would be a good place to talk about, um, some of the, uh, some of the problems that cropped up specifically due to the, uh, the overheating. Um, but they were always planning on ending the mission with, uh, with an impact, you know, as if you had a choice when you're orbiting around the moon, you're going to hit the moon sooner or later, uh, except for like the, the three, stable orbits i know <laughs> but um th this this was not a stable orbit this this was gonna hit the moon but they they were always going to end the mission um with an impact but they decided to do it early all these issues stacked up to the point where they expected to have about three or five weeks uh of life worth left in the vehicle so they wanted to make sure that this thing was not going to cause any issues with lunar orbiter 2 um which uh launched in in november and, and you know if if the vehicle becomes uncontrollable and is trying to contact earth you can cause some interference that is going to put another mission in jeopardy so you know they had already hit 75 percent of their imaging goals they had already collected all the data that they wanted uh for radiation and um Geosity, Selenos, Selenos, <laughs> that word, yes. Um, yeah, so 75% were good. Let's just go ahead and, uh, and end this mission. So they identified five major limiting factors. And if you, if you read Wikipedia, it only lists two. It says that their, um, their navigational gas, their nitrogen, uh, was pretty much depleted as well as quote, other deteriorating conditions. If you're like me and you want to know what other deteriorating conditions are with a burning <laughs> passion, um, there is a fantastic article I found on history.nasa.gov. It's linked in the show notes, but he here's, uh, an overview. You can, there's a lot of really good detail in this article. Um, but here's an overview. So because they're doing all these extra maneuvers to, um, do these cool down orientations, uh, that ate up, uh, extra power. And it's kind of interesting. The way they talk about it is actually, um, more about the power balancing requirements, actually keeping the vehicle power positive. Um, and I like that way of thinking. It's not just that you have less power to do things. You actually have to do work to be able to do those other things. Right. And so they, they kept doing these, this heat dissipation orientation, the, the heat dissipation periods because they worked. But the thing is that they didn't work perfectly. The way that the vehicle cooled itself down was it had a thermal coating. 
And it's basically uh, this paint that's really good at radiating heat off. And they knew that it was going to degrade over time, but the degradation happened uh, faster than they thought. Uh, or, or rather, it didn't, the, the um, heat dissipation periods didn't slow the degradation down in the way that they thought it would. Um, and on top of that, the degradation resulted in worse cooling over time than expected. Um, so kind of a, the, this compounding self-reinforcing issue. The belief is that um, the degradation was caused to pigment damage caused by the overheating. So there's like another layer of self-reinforcing. And, and it's it's kind of this this big fuzzy cloud of of issues that all just kind of compound on each other. And we're not sure which is the chicken, which is the egg, but these all happen. So the heating issues started to get worse and worse. And those heating issues required the additional power draws. The power draws were were exacerbated by the failure of a shunt regulator uh, array. So now not only can they not control, or not only are they having to work harder to do power balancing, but they also have less power uh, that they can use. They're, they're losing more power. And I, I don't know if, if the overheating affected their photography success, but they wound up having issues with their, with their camera timing. They had issues. Uh, so, so basically there are like multiple things that have to happen for each exposure and they all have to be synchronized and they, they weren't being synchronized properly. Um, they were having issues. Oh, Dennis, that's a great photo. So, um, Dennis grabbed a photo of the radiation cover, this flap that opens and closes to, uh, uh, allow the cameras to peek out. And this is probably a good moment to talk about this, this camera system. It's very complex. There were, I think, three or four plane changes in the film path. Like it, it this film is winding all over the place. They're taking photos on film and then exposing them, uh, or expose, exposing is taking the photos. They're, they're exposing the, the film and then they're developing them and then they're having to scan them, uh, and email them back home, basically. Um, and it's, it's a, it's a huge dance that you have to get everything just right. Um, and not only was their, their timing, not working quite as they expected, which resulted in these, uh, these smeary images, but they also were having issues just commanding their shutter to open and close. They, they thought that they were taking photos when they weren't. Um, and to boot the, some of the film developing chemicals, um, started, uh, uh, crapping out on them. So the, the film, uh, chemical that they, uh, site that, that NASA cites, is called BIMAT and it's a capital B. So it's a, it's a, uh, a trade name and BIMAT has to be, um, it, it sits, the, the film is processed on a drum. And so they have to like scrape off the old BIMAT and apply new, new BIMAT every 15 hours. And, um, it, it's, it started to stick and I guess they couldn't get it off, uh, as thoroughly as they wanted, but it, it, everything just starts to degrade. I'm assuming that the chemical issue, uh, is likely due to the, the heating issues. Um, you know, chemicals, uh, don't, don't like, uh, being heated when they're not supposed to. So 
all these issues uh, kind of get tied together yet again as their battery life starts to degrade. The battery life got shorter and shorter and shorter, um, probably due to the to the overheating, and um, then the transponder starts acting erratically, and then the IRU starts degrading. It's not giving them. Uh, well, actually, the, the IRU wasn't able to keep the vehicle pointed in the right direction. I don't know if it was sending all that data home. And I don't know if we could, if we were able to diagnose what that issue was, but, you know, just system after system starts, uh, starts getting a little gross. And so they decided to, uh, to go ahead and end the mission. Now I've gone this whole time without talking about the, the most iconic part of this mission, right? Like I'm super jazzed about getting to photograph, uh, lunar land or Apollo landing sites, but the very first Earthrise photo, um, was taken on this mission. Boeing, who built the vehicle originally uh, opposed taking any Earthrise photos. The problem is that the way that they were going to have an opportunity to do this was to point the vehicle at Earth just as it's disappearing behind the limb of the moon, uh, just as we're losing contact with it. And Boeing says, well, wait, if you're in that orientation when you go behind the moon, and then you have trouble contacting the satellite again, you're not going to be able to command it to go back to a different orientation. And it's going to wind up taking photos and sending them home that are in, in the wrong orientation. I also think that um, being in this orientation might have been bad, thermally speaking. So they're like, well, if you're in this orientation, you come back around and the sun pops up and you can't change it, you know, that might be an issue. I wasn't able to find confirmation of that. This is just a suspicion of mine. But basically, NASA had to say, look, we really want to take this photo. We know you don't like it. So if... We have negative outcomes. A, we're not going to blame you. And B, we'll compensate you for it. <laughs> hmm. I, don't, I don't know what those <laughs> negotiations look like. Um, but Boeing was like, fine, fine, fine. Take uh, your, your stupid, beautiful photo. <laughs> um, now, what's really cool is that the photo was, um, was beamed home, but we didn't do the complete processing on the data. We only did like this preview image. And so if you've seen an image of this, you might have seen, um, this still like hauntingly beautiful black and white photo, but it's got like these vertical bars and you can, you can tell that they're like scan lines and, and it's, it's low resolution and you can't see much detail. It's kind of, it's washed out, but years later, they actually went back and pulled the original tape and they pulled out the tape drives, their FR 900 tape drives. They refurbished the drives. They um, integrated new electronics to actually be able to talk to the tape drives. And they pulled the original data out and did uh, a full resolution treatment. And I'm assuming that the full resolution image is better than they would have been able to have uh, processed in the 60s. Like I'm assuming modern techniques aided. Um, and so we, we wind up with just a drop dead gorgeous photo of uh, the moon not lacking at all for being in monochrome. And then this very nostalgic view of the earth and its clouds uh, in a beautiful crescent uh, just over the horizon. It's called Earthrise because uh, Apollo popularized that term, uh, but it's actually an earth set if we're, if we're being pedantic. Um, and more than that, uh, a second image was actually taken. Um, they, they took 
two uh, photos. The, the first was on Orbit 16. The second was on Orbit 26. Uh, but the high resolution image is from that first, uh, that first imaging attempt. Um, we'll have all this in the show notes for you to take a look at. Um, and, and you, you really should pop into the show notes for this because it's, I mean, it's, it's just, it's breathtaking, you know, it's, it's really fantastic. And to see both of those two versions, you know, looking at, at Earth set from 1996 and then Earth set from, I think it was like 2013, 2015, something like that. Uh, it feels, it feels really good. All right. There you go. That is this week in spaceflight history. That was a really cool tale of, uh, the early days of lunar exploration and photography. Mm. So next week's clue. So the date range is the 17th through the 23rd of August. And Dennis, do you have a clue for us? I do. Next week in 1933, move that parking cone over there. So it's move that parking cone over there, not move that parking cone over there. Right. I did purposely try to yeah, try to get that inflection right. Okay. Move that parking cone over there. If anyone out there thinks that they know what this is in reference to, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. Good luck everybody. Moving right along to upcoming spaceflight events. We got four of them, so that's pretty good. And Dennis, what's our first one? Well, first up on August tenth, we have a wallops launch. So this is gonna be uh, uh the Cygnus uh, CRS two or NG sixteen mission. And so it has named SS Ellison Onizuka, and it will be launching on an Ontario's 230 Plus rocket. This is the 15th uh, commercial resupply service with uh, Orbital ATK's, uh, you know, Cygnus spacecraft. And um, the launch again is on uh, Tuesday, August 10th, uh, with an instantaneous uh, launch at 2156.02 UTC. And uh, yeah, like I said, it's a wallops launch, uh, but specifically from good old launch area 0A. And I guess to just keep it going, a couple days later uh, on August 12th is the coverage of the rendezvous and capture of the, the cargo craft uh, on NASA TV. And so coverage is going to begin at 4.45 a.m. with the uh, robotic arms scheduled to go and snatch it at 6.10 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. And the installation itself coverage will begin at 8 a.m. Um, with the craft being installed to the uh, installation, uh, to the ISS. Then after that is a GSLV Mark II uh, flying EOS-03. EOS-3? I don't know. It's also called GSAT-1, which is vastly easier to pronounce. Um, so GSAT-1 is an Earth observation satellite. It's going to geostationary orbit, and uh, it, it's doing uh, observation of the Indian subcontinent, um, particularly looking for um, natural uh, natural hazards and natural disasters. Um, I'm not sure what the dividing line between those two is, uh, but it's uh, got a multi-spectral uh, camera um, with multiple resolutions going from 50 meters to 1.5 kilometers. Um, so a very targeted kind of, uh, of Earth observation. Not the, um, uh, what are the, what are the big ones that capture everything that looks really good on a desktop and I need to get set back up on my computer? Landsat? Landsat. There you go. All right. So this, uh, GSLV Mark II, uh, is going to be the first GSLV launch since when, Dennis? Since 2018. Yeah, jeez. Been a little bit of time. <laughs> so that launch is going to happen Thursday, August 12th at 0113 hours UTC. So then on the 16th, on the 15th slash 16th, depending on where you are, uh, we have the launch of a Vega 
with the NEO-4 Earth Observation Satellite for Airbus, and uh, apparently it is the second of four of the high-resolution Earth's satellites, so that's pretty cool, um, or mm-hmm. Earth Observation Satellites. It's also launching a number of rideshare payloads, so no surprise there. So yeah, this is launching uh, at 0150 UTC, uh, or 9.50 p.m. on the East Coast, and it's launching from ZLV. I don't remember what that stands for, but that is in Kourou, French Guiana, so that's one of their launch complexes, I guess. It's, yeah, uh, launch area one. Okay, yeah. So, yeah, check that one out as well. All righty. Those are your upcoming spaceflight events. And with that, let's do about the show, and we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dye for our music. We record live on Sundays at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 and up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly, including today's live members we've got colin dave and mike in the chat thank you for joining us if you want to support the show as well please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit the orbitalmechanics.com support for our patreon campaign affiliate links and other resources for more information on this episode such as show notes and other links visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com and be sure to check out our store for mission patches t-shirts and hoodies and our t-shirts are fixed or at least the gemini t-shirt is fixed if you want a gemini t-shirt and you aren't buying it because the colors looked awful you're correct to make that decision it's fixed now (laughs) it wasn't my fault but i also didn't fix it until now so get a t-shirt and after you get your t-shirt you can (laughs) join our discord for free during social distancing check our twitter or reddit for links for orbital podcasts on both and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at orbitalmechanics.com all right so that's it we'll see you all next week on orbit until then later goodbye everybody see you (laughs) 